participate in children's church are going to be excused out of these doors. And then uh, let me ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. It's the last book in your Old Testament. And we began this series uh, just last week to take a look at, well, what's, what are the last words of, of God to his people prior to the coming of Jesus? And, uh, and I confess that, and actually, I haven't really studied Malachi before. Um, I've read through it, you know, in a Bible reading schedule periodically, but well, what ended up happening is I was preparing for this, uh, this series. Uh, I realized there's so many wonderful things going on here. As we take a look at this first statement about the commitment of God to his people to love them and how that statement is going to address every single complaint or frustration or uh, lack of contentment that God's people are feeling. And frankly, things haven't changed a whole lot. We continue, this is now roughly 2,500 years since Malachi. And as God's people, we still question the nature and the quality of his love. We still get really, really hung up on our circumstances and what's going on around us. And we forget to see the, that which orients us and, and recalibrates our hearts so that we know fundamentally God loves me. And that is evident at the cross. Um, so if you open your Bibles to Malachi, I want to look at the first six verses. Let's stand in honor of God's word. And this is the word of the Lord. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Father, we do pray that as a result of not only hearing your word, but taking it to heart this morning, that that would be the expression of our hearts. Great is the Lord. Great is your love. A love that turns away anger for sin. That turns away the justice that should have fallen on us, but fell on Jesus instead. We pray this in his name, in the name of our Savior. Amen. All right, please be seated. And, um, and if you find it helpful, there are these outlines in your bulletins. Uh, I should also mention we, we're beginning a, a, a new thing. We're having a weekly devotional guide on the back of the outlines, which will take you through the New Testament um, by the end of the year. So there's a Bible reading schedule that gets updated each week, and there are prayer points that, that echo some of the things that we're praying for as a congregation on Sunday mornings. And this is great to just stick in your Bible and keep, keep with you through the week. So we're looking at uh, the nature of God's love. And so God's saying that he's loved his people, and his people are basically saying, well, well how have you loved us? You know, um, prove it. Um, maybe, maybe this hits close to home for some of you. Have you ever had somebody that you really love a lot come to you and say, well, I don't feel like you love me? 
I don't see the evidence of your love. And this could be something uh, almost cute, but uh, perhaps precocious. You know, anything from the, the toddler, you know, asking for a cookie, and the parent refuses the cookie, and the toddler says, well, you don't love me, or, or whatever, and you go, oh, you know, cute little boy or girl. Um, to something that's really just downright painful and, and really, really um, heartbreaking when a spouse says that to another spouse, you know, you, you don't love me. And the other spouse is saying, well, you know, yes, I do. And, you know, you have this, this problem where love that's being intended to be received is not being received and vice versa, perhaps. You know, it can happen with adult children and, and their parents, too. I mean, this, this can become really, really serious. And it's really serious here. Where God's saying, I've loved you, and God's people are saying, well, we don't feel that love. We're not convinced. And, uh, and so you have this, this relationship that's in, in jeopardy. This isn't the first time, by the way, that this question comes up. Um, God's people have been asking this question about the, the nature of God's love for, for centuries. Um, in Malachi, they've been brought back to uh, their homeland, you know, Jerusalem and so on, after being exiled. But even before, when they were exiled to Babylon, to Assyria, and so on, they were asking things like this through the prophet Isaiah. I mean, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And God says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. So God is over and over and over again uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, reassuring his people, no, I've, I've not forsaken you. I haven't forgotten you. But there's times when, in our own hearts, we're asking that question to God. How have you loved me? I mean, look at my life, right? Uh, you know, periodically, we'll, we'll say things like, if you love me, why would I still be in this dead-end job? Or God, if you love me, why would... I'd be in this suffocating relationship. If you loved me, why, would, why am I so lonely? Why don't I have any friends? Uh, if you loved me, why am I so deep in debt? If you loved me, why wouldn't you help me get over this you know, problem in my life, this illness or this injury or, you know, you name it, you fill in the blank. Um, don't you start questioning the nature and the quality of God's love when things get really, really difficult, when when life just seems to kind of crush you, and we go, Lord, where's the deliverance? Where's your attention? Where's your affection? I don't feel it. God is nonetheless saying to us, and he's you know, saying it through the prophet Malachi, I have loved you. I still love you. And we're going to see the evidence of that in a minute. Some of you, I, I don't know, maybe, I don't mean to presume. Um, some of you are here, and maybe you've never even been sure of God's love in the first place. It's not as if you're going hey, where's the love I used to feel? It's just, that's a whole new concept to you. Maybe your view of God, um, which was similar to mine growing up, is God's just aloof. Um, and, or, or certainly he's, you know, I don't even know if he's a being, a person at all. He's just maybe a force. So whether he's aloof or a force, uh, I'm here to tell you, based on God's word and his revelation, he is personal. He is loving. In fact, he even describes himself in the simple expression, God is love. Um, so here's a, here's a place where we need to pause and go, well, what is going on where God says that he loved us? Um, God says that he has set his affection on us. And it has to do with his selection of a certain people. And he uses this language of, I have loved Jacob. 
Uh, I have loved Jacob, and, and the contrary is Esau I have hated. And what's behind all that? Let me, let me do a little background here for you. Some of you are familiar with the history of, of Israel, but for some of you who are new to the Bible, new to the church, a long time ago, um, after Eden's expulsion, after you know, human beings rebelled and they committed treason in our hearts uh, against the, the one and only Lord of the universe, and we said, no, I want to be my own Lord. I want to be my own king. I don't want you. I don't want God. And that was the expulsion from Eden, right? God said, all right, you want life on your own terms? You can have it. I'm not going to force this. And uh, he lets them go. And they're, they're, under, now, they're now outside of his covenant, outside of his safety. And then God says, but I'm, wanna, I'm not going to leave it at that. I'm going I'm to redeem, I'm going to restore, I'm going to rescue. And he, and, he, and he does that through Abraham. Um, and then Abraham has Isaac. Isaac gets a new name, Jacob. And then Jacob has, um, um, well, I'm sorry, no, <laughs> Abraham has Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Um, Isaac's name is turned to Israel. Israel has Jacob and Esau. And through Jacob, God continues to uh, select his people. Uh, listen to Deuteronomy, where God's revealing himself to, the, this is under Moses and the whole nation now that's descended from Jacob. Uh, God says that you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers, think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery and from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Um, a couple of chapters later in Deuteronomy, he says the same thing, basically. The Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. And that's the evidence of the Lord's selection and affection. How out of all this, um, you know, the, the sinful world, God says, I'm going to choose some to be in a special relationship with me, a covenant. And God says that this is not based on anything in those that he chooses. Instead, it's based on his love. It's not based on, you know, Israel's mass or their might or their power or their, their, their charm or, you know, their good looks, etc. It's just based on God's love. And he says, you know, and, and this, is, this raises a question. Maybe some of you are anticipating this and you're ahead of me on this. Um, there's something about this that in one sense, uh, you know, you go, hey, God chose these people and, and they didn't deserve it, but he endeared himself to them and, and loved them. That's great. But then there's another sense which you go, but something about that seems like he's showing favor. He's playing favorites. But I want you to listen to what he goes on to say. God says uh, right after these verses about the Lord set his affection on you, etc. Deuteronomy 10 says that the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. So God says he shows no partiality, doesn't accept any bribes. And you try to weigh that against, well, well but he's certainly selecting a, a group of people and sending his affection on these people and not these people. So which is it? Well, don't get hung up, all right? Let me give you a grid through which to look at this, uh, a way of, of understanding what it means that God is showing a selective love and, and showing his affection to a certain few. 
when, I mean, God says that he shows love to the fatherless, to the orphans, right? And he does that literally through adoption. That's what the gospel says, is that we're adopted sons and daughters of our Father in heaven through the spirit of adoption, the spirit of his son. And so when you've got a family and they choose to adopt, and they take this one particular child, they select a child and set their affection on one particular child, what's the reaction of the, their peer group? You know, those that, that know this family and know this couple and, and, you know, know what's going on. Are they doing, are they, are they celebrating that adoption and that choice, or are they doing this? Hmm. Well, that's interesting and a little suspicious, and I'm not so sure how I feel about them selecting this one child and setting their affection on this one child. Well, what about everybody else? Would you, I mean, nobody criticizes the adoptive parents for their choice to take one child and select that child and place their affection on that child. You're just giving thanks. Look at the love, look at the compassion, look at the inclusion, and that's a beautiful expression uh, of, of that kind of affection being shown. Another way of looking at it is this. God says that God's people are his bride. Um, and when a husband, uh, when, a, when a groom is standing uh, in front of you know, all the, those gathered together you know, uh, on this day, and, and then the bride comes down the aisle and and it's beautiful, and there's a wedding, and so on. Nobody is sitting there going, well, gee, you know, what a jerk. He chose her and not, you know, all these other women. Nobody's doing that because they realize the beauty of that selection, the beauty of that affection being placed on that one person. God says his people are his bride. Um, you know, one other thing I want to say is this language of Jacob uh, I have loved, Esau I have hated, you know, I need you to understand that that's also a way of speaking about priority. Jesus uses the language of love and hate to describe what it means for those who follow him to put him first. He says in Luke 14, um, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So is Jesus saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to really, really just loathe your, your, your parents and your brothers and sisters and your extended family and then come and be, be my disciple. By the way, I'm love. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Instead, we need to see that as the language of priority because that's exactly what Matthew does in his account where he says that Jesus says, if anyone does not love me more than father and brother and sister and mother, they cannot be my disciple. You see the priority there? Our love for Jesus, God's love for us, is so beyond anything that he feels for you know, the rest of the world that it is hatred in comparison. We have that kind of love, that kind of attention, that kind of affection. It's, it's zeroed in on you. God has loved you with that, that intensity. Uh, and now we've got to deal with this other language of, you know, hey, Esau, I've hated and how the dynamics of wrath and love, and what's that all about? You know, this, these are really good questions that people ask about the nature of God's wrath. What does it mean for God to be an angry God? What does it mean for God to be a loving God? And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll scratch the surface here. You know, a long time ago, uh, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God said, all right, I'm gonna, out of all the, those who have rebelled against me, I'm going to rescue and redeem a certain group. And that was mercy. Uh, that was an act of kindness to those people. 
Uh, people, by the way, who, who did not deserve that kindness. Instead, if, if they had gotten what they deserved, it would have been ongoing alienation and, uh, and judgment, because that's what sin deserves. But instead, God says, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to bring you back into a, a relationship with me, and I'm going to set my affection and my attention on you. But what position does that leave everybody else? If God says, all right, I'm going to rescue this group, I'm going to set my affection on this group, what position does that leave everybody else in? It actually doesn't change their situation at all. They're in the same condition they were before God said, all right, I'm going to redeem a select few. I'm going to show mercy to a few. They're in the same position they were to start with. But here's another way of looking at this grid. Um, God says that, you know, yeah, I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to be a spouse to me. I'm going to endear myself to you. But he also says that I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to pardon you. So another way of looking at this kind of selection, this kind of affection, is a way that somebody is granted clemency, a, a way that a criminal is pardoned. Um, you know, that person doesn't deserve to be pardoned. They've committed a crime, and justice should be served, right? But every now and then, there's this pardon. There's this forgiveness that comes, and we have to understand what's that all about. You know, God says, I, I'm going to forgive you, and, and we need to be careful here because the analogy breaks down between the clemency and, and how God forgives us because a lot of times clemency has to do with things like, you know, some, some kind of forensic issue arises, and somebody finds some DNA that doesn't exactly match up, and all of a sudden the evidence against this person who's on death row becomes suspect. Or there's been so, such a radical rehabilitation in this person that it almost seems like you know, you're obliged to let them go. But that's not the case with us. God forgives us before we ever did anything good or bad, you know, in, in the sense of, you know, are we going to endure ourselves to him? No, we can't because we've rebelled against him. This is the way that uh, God said that his attitude was going to be toward, uh, toward Edom. And Edom, and in our passage here, these are all of Esau's descendants. And Israel is all of Jacob's descendants. And this is Edom um, out of the prophet Obadiah. He says that because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. And as you have done it, it will be done to you. And your deeds will be returned upon your own head. And so... When you look at God's wrath, it's always against something that somebody has done. It's always based on something in them. You know, they've done something against his holiness, and so God is, going to, is compelled to judge that, except in the case when he forgives. He's not obliged to forgive, but he chooses to. But he is obliged to hold people accountable for sin, just like he was obliged to hold Edom accountable for their sin. Then there's this other, you know, aspect of love. Wrath, you know, has to do with what we've done to incur that sentence, that judgment. Love, on the other hand, is undeserved. Love is the kind of thing that comes to us without condition, without anything in us that merits that love. In fact, when we hear people start saying, um, hey, I love you because of how good you make me feel. Or I love you because... You're so beautiful, or I love you because, you know, you make so much money, <laughs> and you just, you know, you're my sugar daddy or whatever. When people start saying, I love you because, and, and there are all these sort of descriptions and conditions and, and things that are attached to that, you should start having some question marks going off in your head, because what happens when 
the person that you love stops giving you those warm, fuzzy feelings. And what happens when the person that you love starts getting wrinkly and gray and, you know, you know, they're no longer that handsome guy or that beautiful woman? What happens when the person that you love, you know, hey, they're not able to provide as well as they, they used to? Um, what happens when those things that, that you used to think attracted you to those people are no longer there? And God says that love isn't based on that. Love isn't based on anything in the recipient. It's based on everything that's in the giver. And that's the nature of God's love. He gives it to those who don't deserve it, who haven't done anything to earn it. If we've done anything that deserves uh, a, a reaction, it's we've betrayed God. And that deserves the reaction of judgment. So I want you to see these two dynamics at work. You know, wrath is deserved. Love is undeserved. Love comes to us as a gift. Love comes to us as grace. Love comes to us as something that isn't based in us, but it's based in God. And that's really, really good news to us because that teaches us that the fundamental nature of God is to give and to love and that if he's going to react to sin, it's, it's what we've done, not so much what he's done. And then we look, again, we look further and we look at the cross and we see love and wrath at the cross. Um, some, sometimes if you ask somebody, hey, when you look at the, at the cross, what do you think of? Do you think of love or, or anger? And I think most people are inclined to look at the cross in, in verses like, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. When we look at the cross and we think of it in terms of love, but we also need to look at the cross when we need to think of it in terms of, of anger and of wrath because both were poured out on the cross. God's love was poured out on his people, and he was able to pour that love out because he was simultaneously pouring out his wrath on his son, who was our substitute. Um, listen to, to one verse. Uh, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And in 1 John 4.10, we read, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice or a propitiation for our sins. And those are, those are our $5 theological words uh, today. Let me break those down. Sometimes we get the impression, and I remember sitting in um, you know, religion class in college and stuff, and you hear about the God of the Old Testament being this angry God, and the God of the New Testament being this God who wants to love us. And, uh, and I'm here to tell you those are lies. <laughs> because the God of the Old Testament loves his people, and he also is righteously angry at sin. And the God of the New Testament is the same God. And when we look at the cross, what we need to see is both God's wrath for sin and his love for sinners simultaneously being demonstrated. It's not as if, you know, God the Father is really angry and Jesus, full of love, just comes and says, hey, can you chill out? In fact, let me do this. I'll, I'll give myself and, and then, you know, everything will be okay. God is loving us through Jesus. Um, and the cross is showing us not only God's love for us, the, the, you know, magnifying that for us to see, but he's showing us how his wrath is satisfied. It's showing us something not only the nature of God's wrath, but it's also showing us the nature of our sin. Um, you know, Reed was up here. He broke his arm playing football. Bad week for football injuries. Uh, ben Mistletoe, he broke his arm too playing football. And so what if... Um, you know, what if Larry and Pam and Mike and Sherry took their boys to the emergency room and said, you know, hey, Doc, it looks, looks really rough, you know, it looks like a break. And the doc says, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. 
Here's a couple of Band-Aids, you know, one for you, Ben, one for you, Reed, and um, just slap this Band-Aid on, it's going to be fine. Well, that's, that is not sufficient. That is not going to mend what has been broken. And what the cross is showing us is the same thing, that, that in fact what needs to happen is a severe uh, solution, you know, a cast and an immobilization because the nature of the break is such that you can't just gloss over that. The cross shows us that my sin and your sin, as much as it's hard to swallow, and as difficult as it is to admit, required the breaking of the Son of God so that my sins could be healed. That's the nature of sin. That gives us a glimpse into the, the, the righteousness of God's response to our sin. But it also magnifies the glory of his love for us. At the end of this passage, you know, it says that we're to praise the one, saying, great is the Lord among the nations for his love. And the reason why that love is so great is because God was willing to send his son to not only be the, the perfect man, the perfect Israelite in that sense, but to die as an Edomite. In the passage, it says that, you know, Edom will say, hey, we've been crushed, right? Can you think of another one who was crushed in the Bible? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Jesus was crushed just like the Edomites were in our place. And Jesus was assigned a grave with the wicked so that he would accomplish the, the, the justification of many. Just like the Edomites were going to be this land of the wicked. You know, that's who we were by our birthright. We were Edomites. And Jesus comes and says, no, I'm going to be your substitute. I'm going to die as an Edomite will so that you can live as one who is loved. You can be adopted as a son or a daughter. You can be betrothed to the one who is your heavenly groom. You can be pardoned and forgiven. And this is the nature of God's love for us. So what do you think? When you start questioning God's love, what do you see? Do you see your dead-end job? Do you see your suffocating marriage? Do you see your, you know, the friends that seem to have abandoned you and you feel lonely and afraid? Do you see your debt? Do you see your illness? Do you see your addiction? Do you see your brokenness? Or do you see Jesus? Do you see a cross? The magnification of God's love, the the satisfaction of his anger. The things that are happening to you now are not God's punishment. The punishment is done. It's finished. That's what Jesus said on the cross. You know, if we suffer in this world, take heart. Jesus said, you're going to be just like your master, and he suffered too. There's going to be stuff we're going to have to put up with and endure, and there's things that even our Heavenly Father is lovingly disciplining us with, but it's not punishment. Punishment has to do with judgment. And the judgment was absorbed by Jesus. How do you know if he loves you? Do you know? Do you know if he loves you? I've been talking about his selection, his affection. How do I know? How do I know if I'm, I'm in that group that he loves? Can I tell you a secret? If you're anxious about that question, 
If you're unsure, I don't know. I'm willing to bet that anxiety, that question, that concern is the evidence of how God has already loved you. Do you know why? Do you know why I think that? Because it says that we love because he first loved us. If you want to love him, if you want to be loved by him, if you have any interest at all in that love, it's because he first loved you. And if you want to grow in that love, you want to grow in that relationship, you want to feel that more, what we need to do is look more and more at the cross. What we need to do is stop questioning and insisting like an impetuous child. Prove it. Prove your love to me. He already has. There's nothing else he could give. Great is his love. Let's give thanks to him who loved us. Jesus, we pray that you would give us the ability to see uh, the height and the width and the length and the depth of your love for us and the way that you went to the cross to satisfy God's wrath and to magnify God's love. We pray that you would put to ease our doubts and our concerns, our our over-concern with our circumstances uh, that can really seem to crush us. But all we have to do is look at the one who was crushed in our place and be assured that you are loving us, that you are sustaining us, that you are blessing us even. Help us to see these ways that you are faithful to your covenant, that you will not abandon your children, that you will not be faithless to your bride, that You will not uh, bring under condemnation those who have already been acquitted. Lord, thank you for all the ways that you're showing your love to us. And Lord, we plead and cry out for your mercy to those who need mercy, for healing to those who need healing, for for wholeness to those that need wholeness. Uh, Lord, that you would draw near to the brokenhearted, that you would save those who feel crushed in spirit. Lord, answer these prayers, not because we think you need to prove your love, but because of the way the gospel assures us that we're already loved. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.